Um, This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to do verses 13 through 17. It's the Sunday before Christmas, and this might be the first time that I can remember the Sunday before Christmas that I have not preached out of either Luke chapter 2 or Mark chapter 1 and 2. It, it seems like every preacher has to figure out every single year how to make the Christmas story alive in a new way. We talk about it as pastors. What are you going to do creatively for Christmas this year? How are you going to preach the message this year and be different in a way that is fresh? And, and you know what I found? There's nothing that needs to be done to make the Christmas story fresh. Every year we hear it, if we will listen, it is fresh and it is new. And so this year, the way our series is falling, we're not in Luke chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 1. Instead, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 3, not looking at his birth, but looking at the baptism of Jesus. If you're new to our study through the month of December, um, let me refresh you a little bit of what we're doing. We are approaching the, the narrative of the Christmas story from the end of Jesus's life backwards. Because we want to be reminded that the birth of Christ is not disconnected from his purpose, his death, burial, and resurrection. That everything he did here on earth was with purpose. And so his birth is a monumentous event in and of itself. But it is not the end or the punctuation mark. It is the beginning to a better story. If Jesus had been born and that was the end, it would not have survived 2,000 years. There have been other babies born in strange circumstances. There have been other times of of great uh, controversy or travel or or difficulty in the midst of a birth. Jesus is not the first baby, nor will he be the last one that was born outside of a hospital setting without a doctor or a midwife. There are all sorts of remarkable birth stories, but what makes the birth of Christ so amazing and special is the fact that it came with purpose, that God sent his son to earth with purpose. And so we looked at the Last Supper a few weeks ago, approaching the death of Christ, and we're reminded that when we take the Lord's Supper together, it is a physical reminder that God is with us. Last week, we looked at the ministry of Christ, the purpose of him coming. He says that I am for you. I came for this purpose to to meet your physical needs, but more importantly, to meet your spiritual needs. God is for us. And this morning, we're going to look at his baptism and see that Jesus Christ rules over us. God is over us. And so we're going to look in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. I hope you have your copy of God's Word in front of you. We're actually going to read a couple of verses before that as well throughout the message. So now make sure you have your copy of God's Word in front of you, or you can follow along on the screen. Let's read Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. As we look at the baptism of Christ, it's probably one of the first times in the life of Christ that it was publicly made known that this is not a normal human being. We don't have a lot of stories between the birth of Christ and his ministry, his baptism and then his ministry. Most of the Gospels, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, most of the Gospels are written about the time frame of his ministry, of him performing miracles, of him calling people to repentance, of him, of him sharing the Gospel as he goes from town to town, gathering a group of disciples together. We see a three-year window of his ministry. And we don't have a whole lot of details between Jesus was born, he was visited a couple years later by some wise men. When he was about eight years old, they made a trip to the temple and left him behind and had to go back and get him. And then we have the rest of his ministry, a very small amount of the young life of Christ. So this is probably the first, or at least one of the first indications that this is not just a human being, that there's something more to this individual. There were pockets of it. As a matter of fact, we're going to look next week at the Christmas story. We're going to read in Luke chapter 2 and Mark chapter 1, and we're going to visit the different people who came and saw Christ, and they recognized he was different. Certainly Mary and Joseph recognized, but this was standing in front of a crowd for everyone to hear a proclamation that there was something different about Jesus Christ. Now, in his, his book, Follow Me, David Platt has a chapter, and it says, Don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. Now, some of you all like David Platt. I love David Platt. He's a really good author and speaker. And that particular chapter title grabbed my attention the first time I read the book, and it even jars me to speak it when I, I say it. And as you read the chapter, you find yourself agreeing with David Platt. Don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. And the premise of the chapter is this. In accepting Christ, we recognize his lordship, but there is nothing you and I can do to make him Lord. Jesus is Lord. Whether you accept it or whether you reject it, Jesus is Lord. You cannot make him Lord of your life. You cannot make him something greater or better. He is who he is. And what we find in the baptism of Christ is a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is over us. This word Lord sometimes has a, a churchy feel to it. And so uh, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be Lord of your life. As we talk about Jesus being Lord, we, we have this churchy word for Lord and, and we think automatically of some royal kingly figure who is standing over and ruling and reigning and and I think that that is an accurate picture, but it's missing something. It's not just the presence of Christ that makes him Lord. It is the function of Christ that makes him Lord. That is, it's not just what he looks like or how he carries himself, how he dresses or, or how he appears. It's the fact that Jesus Christ is in control 
of all things. He's in control of, of creation. He's in control of animals and plants and oceans. And he's in control of people. He's in control of you. He's in control of me. When we think of Jesus being Lord, I think a king is a right picture. On earth, we have kings who rule and reign. And, and throughout history, there have been kings who have had sovereign rule over their nation. Literally, what they said was law. You can read this in the Bible, especially with the Persian kings. Whenever they signed something as an edict and, and put their uh, seal on the, the edict, it was final and binding and could not be changed. This is a picture we have of a king in control, making all the rules. But the problem with visualizing Jesus as king in that way is that throughout history, we have had examples of good kings. We've had examples of bad kings. There were some kings who, who loved their country and sacrificed for them and did what was best for the people and wanted to see flourishing of culture and, and wanted to see growth and uh, prosperity. And there were other kings who were bad kings, who were selfish kings, who if you crossed them the wrong way, they were off with your head. Our problem with comparing Jesus to earthly kings is we have to ask ourselves, was Jesus a good king or is he a bad king? Is he up there ruling and reigning over us with an iron fist, do it my way or else? Or is Christ Lord in a good, loving way that wants what's best for us? More than Jesus being a good king, Jesus is a perfect king. Everything he does is for our benefit and for our well-being. So this morning, I want to look at Jesus being king over us. I want to look at the baptism of Christ and how it demonstrates that he is in control of all things, that he is greater than all things, and he rules and he reigns over our lives. And as a a precursor to what we'll be looking at during the end of this message, we're going to ask the question, am I willing to recognize that Jesus is Lord over my life? Let's look at our, our text this morning and see four ways that Jesus reigns over us, that God is over us, that Jesus is different from every other human being. The first thing I, I want you to write down if you take notes is this, Jesus is mightier. Jesus is mightier. He's stronger and greater. He, he has a presence about him, a strength about him that we cannot fathom. Nothing in all of creation has been as great and as mighty and as strong as Jesus Christ, as God himself. We read this in the preceding verses. We, we've not read these yet, so let's look at Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12, right before Jesus' baptism. Here's what John says about Christ. John tells the crowds, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, that is Jesus Christ, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A couple of statements here that John makes that kind of jump out. First, he says just what our, our notes say. Jesus is mightier than I am. One is coming who is mightier than me. But then the picture we get is of Jesus carrying, carrying his winnowing fork, that is, the farmer coming to a crop. And not just the strength of the farmer, but what you and I fall into there, who we're compared with. Jesus Christ is the farmer who has all control and all strength over the produce. 
He's got his, his winnowing fork, his farmer's tool, and he is, he's weeding out the good and the bad. You and I, in that, are pictured as the chaff of wheat. Lightweight, fading, blown by the wind, with no strength and no ability to do anything on our own. The comparison makes his strength even more stunning. It's not just that Jesus is mighty, but in comparison to us, it's like the farmer to the, the crop. The crop can do nothing. Jesus Christ is so mighty that you have no ability to do anything but wait and sit back and let him save you. Jesus Christ is mightier. It's Jesus who was the creator of the earth. But we read that in Genesis chapter 1, it wasn't just the Father who was sitting up there speaking things into existence. Genesis says, let us, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let us create. But we read in the book of Colossians that Jesus is greater because he is present in creation. He is called the firstborn over all creation. Not that he was created. Colossians specifically says he wasn't. But that he was present and over everything before anything was made. Jesus is mightier. How strong is Jesus Christ? How much strength does he have? What are his physical abilities? I like to get into debates sometimes over the mightiest superhero, and it's evolved for me over time. I used to really love Batman. I know we've got some Batman fans in here. Batman's pretty cool. He's really a, a rich guy with high tech, and that's awesome. Uh, the, the Marvel equivalent to Batman would be Iron Man, right? You have a lot of money and can build a lot of things, and that's neat. And some people would argue that maybe it's Thor, right? He is, he's from another planet, and he has strength unlike any other. He can smack his hammer down and bring lightning and, and knock people over. Some people would argue it's Captain America with his super serum, right? He's got these big, bulging muscles. He can run faster, go through everything. And we can have these debates on who's stronger. Everyone has their own little powers. Do you know if you watch a superhero movie? If you watch a superhero movie, there's always a weakness somewhere. There's always kryptonite, right? Something that can bring the superhero down. So what is God's kryptonite? What is it that, that weakens him enough, that maybe gives someone an edge over him? How mighty is God? There's some who've said they found the, the kryptonite of God. It's in this paradox question. Maybe you've heard it before. Can God create a rock so large that even God can't lift it? Is that his kryptonite? Is that something he can't do? God can't make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Well, that means he's not able to create all things. Okay, maybe he can create it, but then he can't lift it. God's not strong enough to pick up all things. Here's God's kryptonite. Can I, can I tell you how mighty our God is? God can create an infinite rock as big as you can fathom and imagine and larger. You cannot picture a, in your finite mind how great of a creation God can make. And if you can picture it, double it, and it's still not as big as what God can create. There is no limit to God's creative power. He is mighty. And his strength is such that in his infinite creation, he can still be in control of all of it. He can move it at a whim with the flick of a wrist. How mighty is God? He can create a rock so big that we can't fathom anyone lifting it. And then he can crush it with his weak hand if he had one. Our God is mighty and stronger and greater and over us in such a way that we must fall down and worship his strength. 
Not only is Jesus mightier, but you can also write this second thing down. Jesus is more worthy. He is more worthy. He has a, a worth about him that no one else has. That's what we read about in John, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. When John is approached to Jesus, it says John would have prevented him from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? I think it's helpful to know that John had a pretty large following. He, he was kind of a big deal. There were people flocking to John the Baptist, and he would have been uh, maybe the, the super evangelist of that time. He was like the Billy Graham of the first century. Everyone knew who he was. He had a, a following and a gathering, and what he said had authority among the people. And when Jesus Christ comes, John the Baptist says, wait a second, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Look at these crowds. They're all here because they wanted to be baptized by me. I'm not here to baptize you, Jesus. You should be baptizing me. You are the one who, who has all the great power and might and strength. You are worthy, and I am not. John's saying, if anybody should get the recognition here, if anybody should be in control, if anyone should have worth, Jesus, it is you. Again, this is not something we ascribe to Christ. It's not as if we get to say, okay, Jesus, you have more worth because I'm giving you more worth. Jesus is worthy. He's deserving. The songs we sang earlier this morning, as we lift our voices, he is worthy for us to sing to him. The, the word of God that we read and we study and we learn more about him, he is worthy to be studied and known. The prayers that we offer to Jesus Christ and to God the Father, the, the times that we sit there and we say, okay, God, I need to give you all of my burdens because only you can take care of these, he's the only one worthy to have that conversation with. We're as embarrassed as we get about our faith. And be honest, you get embarrassed sometimes about your faith. I can't sing this way, I can't move this way, I can't do these things, I can't speak this way, I can't share this way. What are people going to think if I do this? What if I stray from the status quo? As embarrassed as we get about our faith, it's because we're saying, Jesus, you're not worthy of me moving and working. I, I can't tell my friend about Christ. It's not worth the risk. And Jesus is worthy. I can't sing freely and, and move in worship. It's not worth the embarrassment. Jesus is worthy. Every hesitation we have about diving into our faith in Christ should be thrown out because we serve one who is more worthy than anything else. It is worth it. It is worth it to immerse ourselves in Christ. Jesus is mightier. He's more worthy. And then thirdly, Jesus is holier. He is holier. Or you can write godlier, although that sounds strange to say God is godlier. It's easier to say Jesus is holier. He's more holy than anything else. He's more pure and right. Look at verse 15. After John says, you, you can't baptize me, I, have to bapt or, I can't baptize you, you have to baptize me. Jesus says this in verse 15. Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Here's what Jesus says. If I'm going to be obedient to the Father, if I'm going to be in a right standing before God, I need to do this act, and you need to baptize me. Now, was it true that Jesus was more worthy than John? 
Yes. Was it true that it should have been Jesus baptizing John and not John baptizing Jesus? From a worth standpoint, yes. But Jesus says, even though I'm greater and mightier and have more worth, I'm also more obedient than anyone else. I'm also more holy and righteous, and I'm going to do what is right, no matter what it looks like to the world. Jesus comes as one that is not just a good person or a better person than you or I. He is holier because he is perfect. Jesus did not come to this earth and figure things out at a young age to live a really spectacularly clean life. Jesus was born perfect and remained perfect, and he remained holy and righteous for the duration of his time on earth, and he continues to remain perfect and righteous for all of eternity. Why is it that Jesus is over us? Because we get it wrong, and he never does. Because we fall short, and he continually gets it right. You and I look to Christ and we say, God, you are over us because you do what's right and what's righteous and what's holy always. To sum it up, I think the best way to explain how Jesus is over us is in this last phrase I want you to write down. Jesus is God. And this, this is probably the most important statement that you can declare in your faith. Jesus is God. And how do you get that, Pastor Trey, from this passage we just read? Well, I see it very clearly here. Let me show it to you in verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God. Let's do a count. One, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. A manifestation of God in a dove, the Holy Spirit, coming and being present with Christ. And behold, a voice from heaven, two, some booming loud voice from heaven, God's voice himself, God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Three, this is the Son of God himself. He's not inherited anything physically from humanity. He was created and placed in Mary's womb miraculously in such a way that he is literally a descendant from God himself. A descendant from God is God. The Son of God is God. And here present in this moment is one of the rare times in all of Scripture that we see physical manifestation of the triune trinity god the father speaking the spirit descending like a dove and the son jesus christ being baptized this is a emphatic picture that matthew puts in the gospel to say this man is different he's not just a good person a strong person a person of worth he's not just someone who who does good things this man deserves to be on the same level field as the Spirit and the Father. Jesus is God. As we think about Jesus Christ being mightier and more worthy and holier, we're reminded the only way he is any of those things is because he is the physical manifestation of God himself. He's over us. He rules and he reigns over us because he created us. 
He sustains us. He controls us. Jesus Christ over us. The question is not whether or not Jesus reigns and rules over you. The question is, do you recognize his ruling in your life? Do you accept it or do you rebel against it? Do you look at Jesus and say, you're the king and I bow to you? Or do you say, you're the king and I run? We're reminded that Jesus is a good and perfect king. Everything he does is for your benefit. Would you submit to Christ today as being the one who rules and reigns and cares for you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in control of all things, that you are mighty and strong. We praise you because you're worthy and we are not. Lord, we, we come before you and we acknowledge that we're imperfect, sinful people, but you are holy and always do a try. Lord, we confess this morning that you are God. And so we ask, Lord, we ask that we would fall to your feet and that you would accept us as your humble servants. Father, we thank you that you're in control of all things because when our life's a mess, we know we have a good and perfect Lord who is caring for us. This morning, Lord, we confess our unworthiness and our sin. We ask for your forgiveness and we pray that you would lead us and guide us as one who rules and reigns over us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.